0: Chuck Feeney made up his mind that he was going to die broke and Forbes magazine reported that this year he finally accomplished his goal. It took him almost 40 years to give his whole fortune away. He did it anonymously and he did it very carefully and deliberately. He invested in projects that really helped the world's poor and sustainable ways and projects that made the world a better place. Chuck Feeney has now given away 99.98% of his whole fortune. He's left with just $2 million uh, for he and his wife to live on in their retirement. They live in San Francisco in a sparsely furnished apartment that the Forbes magazine writer said reminded him of a college dorm room. Uh, Chuck Feeney's also friends with Warren Buffett, and he's also inspired Buffett to rally some of their other billionaire friends to kind of follow suit and make a commitment that they're also gonna give away half of their own fortunes before they die. So Feeney's been something of an inspirational figure. And I don't really know him at all or know anything about his faith or his spiritual life, but it seems to me just from this information that it would be hard not to call him a good man a hero, someone who exemplifies a life that's really well lived. It's hard work and business success going hand in hand with unselfishness, humility, and compassion for the lives of others. If that is not a righteous life, then what does a righteous life look like? So when we live among people like Feeney, and there are many others like him, we could multiply stories, can we, How should we understand Paul's statement in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that no one is righteous? No, not one. So we remember the biblical idea of righteousness from a few weeks back. I preached this and used the illustration of Beats headphones, because righteousness in the Bible means something that's good and sound and sturdy and reliable. Um, And if no one is righteous, then we're kind of in trouble, because it means, do we even know what righteousness looks like, what it's supposed to look like? Um, And if it's that high of a standard, is it even possible for anybody? Um, So those are some of the troubling questions that this idea raises, and I want to dig into that. So we're really going to focus on the second half of uh, the passage studying verse 10 today there's a lot of good stuff in the first half but I really want to dig into this idea that no one is righteous because it's so central to the Christian gospel can it really be true that no one is like these beat headphones no one is sturdy and reliable okay so the first thing I want to say is that Paul is not saying in this statement that there are no righteous people on earth Because in the very next chapter, in chapter four, he's going to talk about Abraham and how Abraham was credited as righteous. And then we also remember that several of the Old Testament saints were called righteous. You read that Noah was a righteous man um, and Job and Daniel. God calls them righteous men. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23, when he's talking about Abel, uh, applies the label. He is righteous Abel. Um, So Jesus is happy to call Abel righteous. So when Paul says no one is righteous, he's not saying there have never been any righteous people, that you've never seen one. And we would be in real trouble if that were the case, because we'd have no idea what God wanted, what righteousness looked like. Um, And when we saw good behavior going on that looked righteous, we'd have to second guess whether it really was. Instead, Paul knows that there are righteous people, but only the ones whom God himself makes righteous, right? And that's always been the case in both the Old and New Testaments. So God provides a way for his people to become righteous. But then, of course, it's nothing that we can boast about, just a pure gift of his grace. So I want us to hear again this promise to Israel that Moses gave them in Deuteronomy 6. Moses said, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. And then he said, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God. So notice that there's a promise built into the law that the law can make people righteous. So Paul's really wrestling here in this passage with, but the first caveat is that when Paul says, no one is righteous, he means no one is naturally righteous and no one can become righteous through their own strength without God's instruction and without God's help. But even so, that's still an alarming thing to say, isn't it? Uh, Does it mean then that God's standard of righteousness is a completely unrealistic standard? Um, So the second thing I want to say about righteousness is that God's standard and our standard are not completely different. Um, And this is also very important for us to know. God has a much higher standard than we do for ourselves, but it's not so high that we don't recognize it. So we remember that in Old Testament times, the nations around Israel also had an idea of righteousness, of a righteous person. And their idea of a righteous person was not completely different to Israel's idea. We know from their law codes that they protected and promoted hardworking, honest, considerate, courageous people. While at the same time they punished crooked, lazy, deceitful people. So someone like Chuck Feeney is considered righteous in any culture. A man like Feeney may or may not be a Christian or a God-fearer at all, and people who don't know God might admire him just as much as people who do. We look at the way he spent his life, and we say, that was a good life, and that's because God's standard is not completely different from our standard. It's much higher because we're so much more glorious than any of us imagine, and on some counts, we do get things muddled and disagree with God, But the point is that when we see righteousness or something that approaches it, we recognize it. And that point, too, is essential to Paul's argument here, because throughout Romans chapters one, two and three, Paul is really calling everybody, everyone who reads his letter and hears it to be our own judges. Paul's saying, look at yourself, look at your own situation honestly and ask yourself, do you not know enough? about God and his righteousness to see that you yourself fall short. So C.S. Lewis says this in The Problem of Pain. He says, the divine goodness differs from ours, but it is not sheerly different. It differs from ours not as white from black, but as a perfect circle from a child's first attempt to draw a wheel. But when the child has learned to draw, it will know that the circle it then makes is what it was trying to make from the very beginning. So it shouldn't surprise us either that when Paul describes unrighteousness from the Old Testament, that's easy for us to recognize too. It makes sense. So here's what Paul says when he starts in verse 10. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now listen here for all the body parts. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what Paul's done here, this is the longest quotation from the Old Testament in Paul's writings and what he's done is it's not from one place it's actually from about eight places it's like six psalms and then a chapter from Isaiah and from Ecclesiastes and it shows that through the broad witness of the Old Testament that the scripture actually accuses the covenant children of Israel of unrighteousness so Paul is proving from the Old Testament that the Jewish people need a savior too but Paul's litany that he puts together also demonstrates two other very important theological points for us. The first is that the righteousness that God is looking for cannot be separated from God himself. So, verse 11 of Romans 3 says, No one seeks for God. And verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes and that in the view of the old testament is the heart of the problem so when we think about righteousness we might be tempted to kind of erase god from the idea erase god from the picture Um, but paul and the old testament want to say that that's impossible because turning away from god himself is the very seed of unrighteousness and no one can be righteous who doesn't turn back to god whatever else they may do so that's really important but the second theological point is this idea of total depravity. You may have heard of the doctrine of of total depravity. It's it's pretty popular in in evangelical circles, Um, and it really comes out of Romans 3 primarily. Uh, So if you look at what Paul says about unrighteousness, it's full of body parts, right? We notice that. Unrighteousness affects our throats, our tongues, our mouths, our feet, our eyes, and by extension, every part of us. So from this, we, uh, we, we not only believe that every person on earth is infected with sin, but also that sin touches every part of every person. So, excuse me. So because of sin, nothing about us, not our minds or hearts or souls or eyes or feet or hands or any part of us is reliable anymore. So um, think about it. It's a bit like uh, if if you've been to med school, if you're a doctor who's been through med school, um, there's not a tiny part of the human body that doesn't get covered, right, that you just don't need to learn about. There isn't a lesson where they point to a chart and say, okay, so down here is the second auxiliary secretionary gland, but we don't need to worry about that, because that never goes wrong, right? That doesn't happen. Every single tiny part of the human body goes wrong. Every part will need a doctor before long at some point in somebody. And the doctrine of total depravity says a similar thing about the effect of sin on our whole person, just that it gets everywhere. It's not that we're in every way as bad as we could be. That's not the truth about us. No one is. But no part of us is as good and sound and reliable as it should be. All right, And every part could break down at any moment. That's what we mean when we talk about total depravity and the reality of universal sin. So I hope that brings us to understand what Paul means when he says that no one is righteous. No, not one. And it remains a very surprising statement, something that when we first come across, it shocks us and is hard to bring into line with what we observe in the world around us. But as we deeply think about it, and as we especially look at ourselves, I definitely myself have found that this idea makes more sense of who I am and the world that I see around me than anything else I ever heard. So again, all of this is designed to get us into the place of needing some good news, of being hungry for the good news. We want a savior. We want to be rescued. And that's just coming next week. The next verse is where the savior comes in. But today, what I've done is taken us on a somewhat roundabout journey to get to Paul's main question in this passage, which I want to wrestle with right at the end here. The third and final point, then what advantage has the Jew? And wrestling with this question helps us to wrestle with this whole question of righteousness. Paul takes on the question twice in chapter three. First in verse one, what advantage has the Jew? And he answers positively that Jewish heritage has much value in every way right and then he takes it on again in verse 9 and he says are we Jews any better off and he answers no (laughs) which sounds pretty contradictory so we need to explain that Um, and Paul just mentions the ideas very briefly here in this chapter but he's planning to explain himself much more fully in chapters 9 through 11 but let's just look at what he says here. Let's start with his second answer in verse nine. The Jewish people are no better off for having the law because the law by itself cannot produce righteousness is Paul's conclusion here. It's really, really important in scripture. So the idea is that even if you want to keep the law, even if you decide with all your might that you're gonna keep it, you can't keep it merely by wanting to. And the law does this really interesting thing in the people who try to keep it. It sets up a standard of living which promises to be very rewarding. You know, this is gonna be worth it. You're gonna want this and people do want it. And it seems in our own estimation to be very good. There's no problems with this law. It's good and it's desirable. And it also seems in our own estimation to be quite manageable. If you read through the law of Moses on paper, it's far from being an impossible standard. It sounds, that's very manageable. We can live that way. But then when we decide to try and live by it, we find ourselves utterly incapable, almost strangely, paradoxically incapable. And in going through that exercise, what we discover about ourselves is the reality of sin and our need for a savior. So Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it showeth unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed who is Christ. So you may have heard about the uses of the law that Luther had, and the main one was it's a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So the first answer that Paul gives is that the the law gives the Jew no advantage when it comes to attaining righteousness, because the justification we need can only come through mercy. It can only come through God's mercy. That was always the case in the Old Testament, and it's become the case even more with the revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. But the second answer from verse two, the advantage to being a Jew is still, Paul says, much in every way. Why is this? And I think we've seen the first answer already, because having the law reveals your sin. That's that's a really great and precious gift, actually, when it comes to wanting the savior. Um, And now a second big advantage to being a Jew is that they have a centuries-long heritage of knowing the true God. They've had a lot more time than the Gentiles to learn to trust God, and Paul says they've been entrusted with the very oracles of God, with God's word spoken into their hearing, and also several mighty covenants, the witness of great miracles, the gift of godly leaders, and the guidance of trustworthy prophets for centuries, demonstrating God's goodness and his faithfulness, right? That matters. It means something. It gives the Jewish people a strong advantage when Jesus finally comes to be able to recognize him and to be predisposed to trust him. So it's a bit like if a visitor comes in the doors of incarnation when we gather and I shake his hand on the way out of church, I might wonder how deeply I'm ever going to know that man or how long it's going to take me to trust him. But what a different story it is if that visitor to church is my own dad. And on the way out of church, I shake his hand, and I already know him, and I already trust him. That's the kind of difference it makes to be Jewish when Jesus comes, according to Paul. And let's also say, Paul mentions here that some were unfaithful in verse 3. But let's also recall that some of them were faithful. We needed the the witness of the faithful Jewish people to have what we have. So before Jesus even came, the law and covenants of God succeeded in leading many people home to God, people like David and Daniel and Joseph and Job and Ruth and Boaz. And they succeeded more recently with Mary and Joseph and Anna in the temple and Simeon and the 11 Jewish apostles. And where would we be without these people? So while Paul stresses the failure of the law to bring about righteousness because he wants to lead Jews home to Christ, Let us, who are mostly Gentiles, praise the Jewish people for what they accomplished on our behalf. They kept the word of God safe for centuries for us to read it. They preserved a covenant people for Jesus to be born into. They learned to trust God, and they produced almost everybody who wrote or is written about in our Bibles. So let us say thank you, children of Abraham, for what you did for us. For your courage and your faithfulness and the suffering you bore on our behalf all right so we began with chuck feeney who was a very impressive man and we considered him and philanthropists like him when it comes to paul's statement that no one is righteous and as we wrestled with that idea we learned first that although no one is naturally righteous god has always put in place a mechanism by which people can be made righteous Second, the righteousness of God is higher than our own standard, but not completely different from it, so that we recognize it when we see it. And third, that Jewish people have no advantage over Gentiles when it comes to trying to earn their righteousness through the law, because that cannot be done, but they have great advantage when it comes to learning to trust God, which is what really matters. So now, as I close, I want to tease out some practical implications of this idea that no one is righteous. The first one is that however far we progress in our own walk with God, we never forget our own basic unrighteousness. We are not naturally righteous and we are not fully righteous yet. The memory of our unrighteousness is really vital in our Christian life because it keeps us humble. It keeps us on our knees and making forward progress with God. It protects us from anger and judgmentalism, and it helps us to measure out forgiveness to others. We do not overly trust ourselves to make the right decision every time or to always do the right thing. So we follow God and we put in realistic safeguards for ourselves to um, protect the world from our own sin, realizing that we are not righteous. So keeping in mind our own unrighteousness bears all kinds of good fruit and forgetting it causes great harm. The second implication is that we never forget that the people around us are unrighteous either, right? This is really important too. Um, So maybe there's someone in the world who you attempted to lean on to save you. Maybe it's a wife or a husband or a parent or a priest or a political leader who's running for high office. And part of you wants to say, this person is good. This person is trustworthy. They'll always do the right thing. They'll rescue my situation. But friends, no one is righteous, and no one except for Jesus can save us. So yes, we do all depend on each other and need each other, and I'm not advocating for a spirit of independence. But at the same time, we do apply the same standard of basic unrighteousness to each other that we apply to ourselves. It's just much more realistic, and it turns out to be much more loving because it means that we don't trust people carelessly beyond what they have earned we don't trust them more than we should, and we don't give untested people the power to hurt us or our community. And when people hold a position of power, we don't stop praying for them that they would choose what is right and avoid doing great harm. In other words, we behave like people who believe in total depravity. We conduct background checks and we keep rules. And I suspect that every time a church has fallen into scandal in recent years, the core reason was that they forgot about total depravity for a while. And finally, there is a racial justice component to all of this because the reality is no one is righteous. That means white people sin and black people sin and all other people sin and no one is righteous. And that's really important for us to remember today for two reasons. First, because we, and I'll speak as a white person here specifically to white people, non white people can apply this as they see fit, but we often fall into this trap of believing that sin falls along racial lines. And I'll caricature this to get the point across. We think to ourselves, yes, white people do sin, they sin a little in respectable ways, but you don't expect to see it very much or very often. But in the black communities or the Hispanic communities, that's where the real sinning goes on. That's where the police get called out to every day. And if this attitude secretly exists in our hearts, then it comes out when there's an atrocity like a mass shooting, because in a mass shooting, if the shooter is white, then you see the reaction of the white people. We're shocked. We look for something to make sense of the action, like that the shooter was mentally ill or or some reason that he was behaving unlike a white person, right? Right. But if the shooter was non-white, then we're far less shocked and we don't have trouble believing that that person was just representative of their community. How ugly is that? That is so out of touch with the gospel. Paul says no one is righteous. No, not one. And to think that sin falls along racial lines is profoundly unbiblical, untrue and hateful. And we need to stop it immediately. Focus instead on our own Personal unrighteousness. That's where our attention should be. But the other side of the coin is that I do think there's also a pattern today of communities who consider themselves marginalized or oppressed giving themselves a free pass on their own sin. And I think the logic is that since we have been so mistreated, since there has been so little justice for us, that is the source of our problem and that is the whole problem. It is outside. It is over there. We are victims. And friends, that is not biblical either. Paul says no one is righteous, not even one. And in Paul's view, that is always the main problem. So the primary source of misery then for black Americans is the same as the primary source of misery for white Americans. And that is that we are unrighteous. I'm not saying that no justice is needed or no public repentance is needed or no reparations are needed. They are needed. But I am saying that being oppressed or abused or marginalized does not give us a free pass on our own sin. Unfortunately, no amount of personal suffering or injustice exonerates us. It doesn't cure us that other people are worse. We all need the cross of Jesus. So there are so many reasons for us to be angry with each other, many reasons to cast blame. And when we do, we're probably right. But being right won't solve our ultimate problem. Paul calls each one of us to look at ourselves and say that we are unrighteous. Total depravity has infected every part of us. So what can be done to fix that problem? And I invite you to tune in next week and find out.